Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we'll conduct a question-and-answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your host for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Tanisha, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone today to the fifth annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And this is part one of that series, and the title of that program is Neuropathy and Joint Aches, New Post-Treatment Challenges. We are delighted to have all of you on the call today and to be able to offer this very important topic as our part one of this series. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. Without that collaboration, we would not have been able to reach so many of you. Now, I want to let you know that we have 1,930 people on the call today. So there are a lot of you on the call today, and you come from all over the United States, from small cities and large cities, from rural and frontier communities, and from suburban communities as well. We also have a number of international participants from Australia, Brazil, Canada, Scotland, and Spain. So you really come from all over the world and are clearly a group of information seekers. Now, I would like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials is an outline that our speakers have prepared. There also is information about each of the sponsoring organizations, really wonderful information about them. And there's information about the Facing Forward series, a wonderful series that has been developed by the Office of Cancer Survivorship at the National Cancer Institute. There is also an evaluation form, and I would ask you to take a moment at the end of today's program and please complete that evaluation form. You know, your feedback is so critical to us in determining the programs that we offer in the future. And indeed, the program today, that the topic that we chose today, was based on the feedback that we received from you from last year's series. So please tell us what you'd like us to do. Very important for us to have that information. Now, our program today is made possible um, by support from the National Cancer Institute and Live Strong, the Lance Armstrong Foundation. And we really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Um, it's really been critical to um, our being able to offer this entire series. Now, I do want to introduce to you uh, my co-moderator, Julia Rowland. Dr. Julia Rowland is Director, Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Science, Sciences at the National Cancer Institute. And Dr. Rowland is going to say some words of welcome to each of you as well. Thank you, Carolyn, for your, as always, gracious introduction. And I want to add to your welcome to all of those who are online today. Truly an honor to be able to co-host the fifth year of this special teleconference series, focusing on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. This is a series for which, as Carolyn notes, the number of participants has continued to grow across the years. Along with our program partners, we've been deeply gratified by this response. At the same time, we note that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, even though cancer treatment may be over, the cancer experience is not. 
The National Cancer Institute, represented today by the Office of Cancer Survivorship, the office I have the privilege to direct, the Office of Education and Special Initiatives, and the Cancer Information Service, is pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner for this program. We're also pleased to be able, along with the Lance Armstrong Foundation, to serve as a co-funder of the Survivorship Teleconference Series. As many of you know, the National Cancer Institute's Office of Cancer Survivorship, established in 1996, celebrated its 10th anniversary last year. The overall goal of the office is to improve the length and quality of survival for all those living with a history of cancer, a number which, according to figures released just last week by the National Cancer Institute's Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results, or SEER program, includes almost 10.8 million individuals in the United States alone. One of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach programs designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information they need to master their own or help a loved one to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. Today's program is an important part of the National Cancer Institute's educational mission. The topic we've chosen for this particular workshop, Neuropathy and Joint Aches, New Post-Treatment Challenges, was identified as a special area of interest by previous participants in the teleconference series. It also reflects what clinicians are hearing more about as they continue to follow survivors after treatment, specifically concerns about unusual and persistent pain syndromes. Survivors want to know, why do I have these aches and pains? Is this due to my cancerous treatment, or is it simply aging? How long will these sensations last, and is there anything I can do to relieve my discomfort? As you will hear shortly, our two outstanding speakers bring both personal and professional insights into understanding and managing these newly emergent challenges to cancer recovery and long-term survivorship. I'm delighted to be co-hosting this second, this uh, fifth, rather, series again with my esteemed colleague, Carolyn Mesner, to whom I will now return the program. Thank you very much, Dr. Rowland, for your wonderful words of welcome to everybody and really for setting a context for the program today. So our first speaker is Dr. Julie Silver, and Dr. Silver is presenting at this point as a cancer survivor. She is Assistant Professor, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. And I'm now going to turn the program over to Dr. Silver, who's going to tell you about her experience as um, a survivor's perspective. Dr. Silver? Thank you, Carolyn. Well, it's a pleasure to be here today and to share my story. I have been a doctor of physical medicine and rehabilitation, a physiatrist is what we're called, uh, for more than a decade. And I've treated many, many cancer survivors because part of what my specialty does is to help people recover from serious illness and injuries. But I got my own uh, personal uh, perspective when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2003. And one of the things that really surprised me, and it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did, was how so many cancer survivors are feel really pretty good at the beginning of treatment and then feel just terrible at the end of treatment. And that's very different than what happens in medicine in general. In general, someone has pneumonia and they have a high fever and a cough and they feel terrible and they go to the doctor and the doctor gives them something to make them feel better. So they actually feel the worst at the beginning and the best at the end of treatment. And that's exactly the opposite with cancer in many instances and certainly in my case. I felt I was in my 30s, I felt great, and then I 
uh, had surgery and chemotherapy, and I got sicker and sicker and sicker. And then when I was sicker than I've ever been, um, I was done with my cancer treatment and had to figure out how to live now as a survivor, how to how to rehabilitate my body, how to try and have less pain. And that was really uh, an eye-opener for me and something that I have focused on in terms of my own healing, but also in helping others to physically recover from cancer and its treatments. I think I experienced um, not maybe not every pain that, that cancer survivors experience, but I certainly experienced a lot of pain. I had bone pain, and I had muscle pain, and I had joint aches, and I had neuropathy from the chemotherapy. And I had to really assess all of these different pains and what would help and how I could go through the rest of my life having less pain, feeling stronger, and really trying to heal optimally. Many of my pain has resolved, much of my pain has resolved, uh, but not all of it. And probably the most persistent pain that I've had is neuropathy pain in my feet, which I deal with on a daily basis. So today, I'm here as both a cancer survivor and also as a medical doctor who specializes in helping people to physically recover uh, from cancer and its treatment. And I'll share uh, from here on in mostly my, my expert uh, medical perspective on what really helps people in, who are suffering from the after effects of, of cancer and its treatment. I want to thank you very much, Dr. Silver, for that wonderful actually keynote, actually, our survivor's perspective to our program today. It really um, helps everybody to kind of feel on the same page and to feel that um, you've been able to set the context for what our, the rest of our discussion will be. So we're going to hear from you later on, but I want to thank you very much for really telling us your story, which I think resonates for many people on the call today. Our next speaker is uh, Dr. Nessa Coyle. Dr. Coyle is Pain and Palliative Care Service, Department of Neurology, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Coyle is going to actually talk a bit about the factors that contribute to neuropathy and joint aches. She's going to talk about how you describe neuropathy and aches to your healthcare team. And she's also going to address some of the medications that are used to treat the discomfort and pain of neuropathy and joint aches. I'm now going to turn the program over to Dr. Coyle. Uh, thank you, Carolyn, and also thank you, Julie. Um, I've worked in uh, pain and palliative care in the cancer center for many years, and what we're seeing in our outpatient pain and palliative care clinic is that uh, many more people are, are coming with uh, neuropathy and joint aches and pains um, who have um, finished with cancer treatment now, but they're living with the aftermath of some of the cancer treatment. So it's a really important uh, issue, and I'm very glad to be part of this conference call. Um, to talk a little bit, um, about uh, neuropathy and joint uh, aches and pains. Uh, some people experience um, neuropathic pain or nerve pain associated with the cancer and or its treatment, and others may experience joint aches and pains. Uh, sometimes, as Judy said, these symptoms are temporary and gradually diminish after cancer treatment has been completed, and at other times the symptoms persist and require ongoing management. It's very important that um, uh, that you let your physician or nurse know if you're experiencing any of these symptoms. Uh, if you're in active treatment, your regimen may need adjustment, but also the symptom itself needs to be treated because it can really impact on quality of life. Um, first of all, focusing a little bit on joint uh, aches. Um, these arthritic uh, type symptoms are still not very well understood. 
and sometimes, particularly in the older population, they can be quite difficult to sort out because many people already have a background of degenerative arthritis. Um, joint aches and pains may be associated with treatments such as endocrine therapy, and also one can sometimes, uh, people complain of post-chemotherapy rheumatism, and again, Julie described that a little bit. Importantly, now that people feel freer to report occurrence of these symptoms during treatment and after treatment and are being encouraged to do so, the prevalence of these symptoms has become recognized as well as their impact on overall quality of life. So we're beginning to recognize them and um, to try and understand them better. The joint uh, aches and pains can occur with a variety of therapies, including endocrine therapy, for example, aromatase inhibitor A1, um, the common complaints include this diffuse joint achiness or stiffness, particularly in the hands and feet and sometimes in the pelvic bones. People sometimes say they feel as though they've aged overnight or feel like an older lady. They may have difficulty in getting out of bed in the morning or find that shifting positions may be uncomfortable, as well as just doing simple uh, errands or trying to do simple exercise. Uh, typically with A1 therapy, these symptoms begin in the first weeks to months after initiating treatment with a peak of about six months and then usually resolve once the treatment is completed. Uh, at present, the most common medications used to manage the joint aches and pains are similar to those used for arthritis, such as acetaminophen or, for example, Tylenol, or an anti-inflammatory such as ibuprofen, for example, Advil or Motrin. Um, Dr. Silva will discuss other ways to manage these symptoms, including physical therapy and other modalities, but much more research is needed on how to better um, control them. Occasionally, uh, patients, uh, while they're receiving active um, types of chemotherapy, may um, develop very acute joint aches and pains, and in those instances, often we use the opioid drugs and narcotic analgesics to manage those acute um, episodes of pain during the chemotherapy infusion. Um, bottom line, when um, these uh, symptoms are ongoing, uh, don't take, as an outpatient, don't take over-the-counter medications to treat the symptoms without talking with your doctor and nurse first. We need to hear about them, the pattern of the symptom, when it first started, what makes it better or worse, have you had these symptoms in the past, if so, how was it treated, and how effective was the treatment? And again, how the symptom affects your ability to sleep, to walk, to move, to do errands, to interact with your family. In other words, how it affects your overall quality of life. Moving now to uh, peripheral neuropathy. And this is really when nerves don't function properly or cause unusual sensations. And then the term neuropathy is used. Uh, this can occur in one nerve or several nerves. It can be bilateral on both sides of the body or can be diffuse. And uh, neuropathies uh, are associated with either sensory or motor dysfunction. Uh, peripheral neuropathy can be a side effect of some cancer treatments, although there are many other causes of neuropathy. And also, sometimes there can be an unusual sensation, but it doesn't have to be, it's not necessarily painful. Um, a word about the peripheral nervous system, just again to put this into uh, context. Uh, peripheral nerves are nerves that are outside of the brain and spinal cord that carry messages uh, to the brain. Uh, the peripheral nerves are, ca uh, are categorized as either motor or sensory in function. 
motor fibers uh, are larger and help, for example, help you to move and to maintain muscle and muscle tone. Sensory fibers are smaller and more numerous than motor fibers, and they are responsible for the transduction of pain and temperature signals, and also for vibration, touch and pressure. They let you know where your, your body is in space, and also they have uh, autonomic uh, system signals. In other words, letting your bladder know when it's time to empty it or your bowel uh, when it's time to empty, and also maintain your blood pressure. The symptoms of peripheral neuropathy really depend on which nerve is involved and what's causing uh, the neuropathy. Uh, major signs and symptoms may include uh, some weakness, uh, pain, some muscle atrophy, loss of sensation, and sometimes, particularly with chemotherapy-induced uh, neuropathy, loss of deep tendon reflexes, so your reflexes will be tested and they just uh, don't seem to work. Um, if the autonomic nerves are involved, you may get some, uh, someone may complain of some urinary incontinence or increased constipation, or sometimes when a person stands up, their blood pressure may, uh, for, may drop somewhat and they feel somewhat dizzy. Um, in looking at what causes the neuropathy, um, most painful neuropathies associated with cancer treatment are caused by damage to the peripheral nerves from one of three causes surgery, such as mastectomy, lumpectomy, lymph node deception, or a thoracotomy, certain chemotherapeutic agents, and radiation therapy damage to nerves. Other uh, causes can cause a tumor, can include a tumor pressing on a nerve, uh, infections such as herpes zoster or shingles, and chronic conditions such as uh, diabetes, and there's just any general trauma to the nerve. People often describe this uh, neuropathic pain as sharp, shooting, electric shock, burning. The skin may, may feel raw, and there may be a deep, dull, bone-like ache, and often these sensations are unfamiliar to the person. Uh, sometimes also, um, a, 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 a stimulus that doesn't normally cause pain becomes painful. So, for example, if you just stroke your hand, that normally is not a painful sensation, but it can, with the neuropathy, can become very painful, and that's called allodynia. Um, another thing that can happen is that a, a, a normally painful stimulus, for example, if you pinch yourself, that's a little bit painful, but not terribly painful. But again, uh, as a sign of neuropathy, or painful neuropathy, when you pinch yourself, that can become extremely painful, and that's called hyperalgesia where there's an exaggerated painful response to a normally mildly painful stimulus. So sometimes the, uh, these uh, uh, pains, this burning, electric shock, shooting, deep ache type pain uh, can be there all the time or can just happen in spasms. An example of the surgical related um, neuropathic pain, the post-mastectomy pain syndrome, you, people can get this burning, shooting, electric shock-like sensation in the skin around the surgical site. And this can um, occur in 5 to 20 percent of, of, of individuals and is treated sometimes with medication but also uh, with physical therapy, very important. Radiation-induced neuropathy was much more common in past decades, for example, in the 60s 
Uh, but now, as radiation therapy has become much more sophisticated in the way it's dosed and given, this becomes much, much less common. Uh, in the past, sometimes an individual would experience some weakness of the arm occurring many years after radiation therapy, um, and sometimes arm pain developed several years after radiation therapy course was completed. But this is much less common nowadays. Chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy is generally occurs in many different uh, nerves, so it's called polyneuropathy. Um, the symptoms usually occur on both sides of the body. They're symmetrical. And initially, they can occur in the feet and progress to the hands. And commonly, this is called the stocking glove distribution. And again, Julia described this a little bit. Uh, several classes of chemotherapeutic drugs can cause peripheral neuropathy. And these include the vincristins, vinblastin, paclitaxel, cisplatin, carboplatin, and noxiplatin. And the development of these neuropathies, both short-term and long-term, um, the sort of uh, uh, the chemotherapy can be toxic to the nerves, is, is influenced by the age of the person, uh, the single-dose intensity of the chemotherapy given, the cumulative doses, when there's a combination of drugs used which are neurotoxic, and if the person already has a, neuro, a pre-existing neuropathy, for example, from diabetes. And also, it's thought that some people may have a genetic susceptibility to developing the neuropathies. Uh, what you'll find now is that someone is going to receive a chemotherapy agent, which can cause peripheral neuropathy, the individual would be, would be screened beforehand to see if they have any uh, uh, pre-existing uh, neuropathic uh, pain syndromes. And then that uh, evaluation will be done uh, throughout the course of the chemotherapy. Uh, so that when you're looking at approaches to treatment, you try and uh, understand the cause of the neuropathy uh, and then um, prevent it if possible and reduce the pain, improve physical function, reduce the enormous amount of psychological distress the symptom can cause, particularly if one is not sure of the cause of the symptom, and to improve overall quality of life. There are a variety of medications that are used. Uh, the first group are called adjuvants or co-analgesics, and these are drugs which have been designed for something else but have been found to be very useful in these pain syndromes. One example of the antidepressants, the tricyclic antidepressants, for example, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, bisipramine, um, and the analgesic effects of the antidepressants are not dependent on the antidepressant activity. So if someone suggests when you've got neuropathic pain that an antidepressant is used, it doesn't mean they think you're depressed, but it means that they know that this class of drug is very helpful to manage the pain. The other group of drugs we use are the anticonvulsants, and again, uh, these can be very effective in managing neuropathic pain, especially the sharp shooting electric shock component. The, how they work is not clearly understood, but the drugs we commonly use are drugs like gabapentin and pregabalin. Uh, we also can use the opioid analgesic drugs, and we often use these in combination with the drugs, the tricyclic antidepressants and the anticonvulsants. So we can use a combination of these drugs. If the pain is acute and very severe, we sometimes use a short course of steroids while we're thinking of better measures to manage this pain on a long-term basis. Uh, sometimes we use topical treatments like capsaicin, which is a topical um, 
um, uh, self and extracted from chili peppers. The problem is it can burn a lot and take several weeks before it's effective. More commonly, we use uh, local anesthetic topical patches like the lidoderm patch uh, of 5%. That can be very helpful. Uh, other non-pharmacological options are things like biofeedback, relaxation therapy, uh, physical and occupational therapy, which Julie will talk about a little bit, um, sometimes a transcutaneous uh, nerve stimulation, and uh, sometimes meditation and guided imagery. All of these things can be helpful. Um, sometimes we use um, an anesthesia approach and perhaps a, a neurolytic block. Um, rule of thumb, though, very importantly, that clinicians take these side effects of treatment very seriously because of their impact on quality of life. We need to hear about them so that we, they can be understood in terms of cause, treatment, and management. Uh, it may be necessary to adjust a treatment regimen, and if unrecognized and not managed well, they can really affect, uh, have a major effect on quality of life. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Quill, for this excellent presentation um, around the treatment of neuropathy and joint aches. And um, I now want to introduce, uh, again, reintroduce uh, Dr. Julie Silver. And Dr. Silver is now going to talk to you about the role of physical medicine and rehabilitation contributing to the evaluation of neuropathy and joint aches, um, medical and rehabilitation management of neuropathy and joint aches, and practical tips to cope with neuropathy and joint aches. And I'm now going to bring back uh, Dr. Silver and um, Dr. Silver. That was an excellent overview. And I have some things to add and um, to just elaborate on. Uh, one of the things that I think it was so important that Dr. Coyle said, and it's really a take-home message for everyone, and it's certainly the way that doctors approach pain management, is that not all pain is the same. And so one of the first things that's so critical is to figure out what is causing the pain and what structures are involved. Is this nerve pain? Is this muscle pain? Is it bone pain? And why is it happening? In doing that, in, in making sure that you start out with the proper diagnosis, not only is it much easier to treat it, but also you can eliminate a lot of worry for cancer survivors. Cancer survivors tend to worry a lot about pain. And knowing what's causing the pain and that it's potentially very treatable uh, is really important. And when patients come in to see me, not that I can get rid of all of their pain and I can't necessarily even get rid of all of my pain, but I can get rid of a lot of pain by using appropriate treatments and also lessening pain that I can't necessarily get completely rid of or completely cure. So that's so important in evaluating pain is, is to understand that not all pain is the same and that knowing what's causing the pain is really critical in terms of deciding how to treat it. I really caution people about making assumptions about their pain and assuming that they have uh, chemotherapy-induced um, uh, peripheral neuropathy without having a formal diagnosis or any other kind of problem, that it really you need a formal diagnosis made by a doctor about what kind of pain you have and what's causing it. So because I, I always tell, um, I always say that, that people often accept more pain and disability than they need to, and one way to not accept that pain and disability is to make sure that you start out with the right diagnosis. Physiatrists are doctors who have long been called pain doctors because we do so much work in pain medicine. And 
Uh, we work as a team with other allied healthcare professionals, including uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, mental health professionals, uh, dietitians, uh, and so on. And um, the, the rehabilitation team is really, really helpful in treating pain. That um, uh, a lot of times medications alone are not the answer, uh, which is something that certainly a doctor can prescribe in his or her office. So we work as a team. And uh, one of the ways that we work as a team, I'll give you an example about getting the right diagnosis and, and uh, working as a team. I had a patient who came in after uh, breast cancer treatment, um, and she'd had quite a prolonged course with chemotherapy, and she came in with numbness and tingling in her hands and said, you know, I'm, I think I have chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. But really what she had was carpal tunnel syndrome, and she had it in both hands. And carpal tunnel syndrome actually is very easy to treat. Um, often you treat it surgically, um, but one of the things that a physiatrist or another doctor who specializes in pain medicine can do is to do an injection of corticosteroids into the carpal tunnel, and that can both diagnose and treat the problem. If the pain goes away, then you know that it's carpal tunnel syndrome, and then sometimes the injection alone is enough treatment that it will, make, it will make the pain disappear forever sometimes. Um, but sometimes the pain comes back, and it, in fact, in this case, it did come back, and she ended up having surgery. And her pain completely went away after surgery. So I, I diagnosed and treated the problem, and then I called on my surgical colleagues to help with the surgical part. And then following the surgery, she came back for more her rehabilitation and worked with an occupational therapist to really work on regaining her, uh, the mobility and fine motor coordination and things like that in her hands. And today she's completely pain-free with respect to her hands. So I'm, not, I'm certainly not suggesting that everyone can be pain-free. And again, I'm not pain-free, so that, that's completely unrealistic to, to suggest. But what I am saying is that there are many problems that, that can be treated or even cured, and getting the right diagnosis is essential. Another way to uh, diagnose problems is, uh, especially nerve problems, is um, by an EMG or nerve conduction study. Um, and this is a test uh, that actually evaluates how fast and how well the nerves are conducting and can see problems with the nerves and help identify what the cause of those problems are. Uh, Doctors will also uh, order sometimes x-rays, sometimes other imaging tests like an MRI study or a CT scan. Sometimes they'll order blood tests. But again, getting the right diagnosis is really important. After you get the right diagnosis, then obviously the next step is treatment. How are you going to help alleviate this person's pain? And as Dr. Coyle said, pain is really strongly associated with quality of life. The less pain people have, the better they feel, the higher the quality of life. So trying to help alleviate as much pain as possible is a goal that doctors take very, very seriously. And as Dr. Hoyle mentioned, one of the things that can be done are medications. And I, I just want to mention that and sort of categorize some of the medications that she mentioned. Um, she talked about different classes of medications. I, I want to uh, suggest that there's also another way to think about medications, which is how they're delivered. And medications can be topical, so there can be creams and patches, and they can be taken orally. There can be joint injections, so in the, um, pain can be taken care of through injections, um, muscle injections like trigger point injections. 
uh, joint uh, injections, nerve blocks, and so on. Uh, one of the, the things that physiatrists have in their little black bag of medical tricks are uh, they do a lot of injections, and they're very good at them. And injections are great at treating localized problems. So if you have a pain that's just in one specific part of your body, there's a reasonable chance that that part of the body can be injected and potentially the pain can be relieved. Um, it really depends on what the problem is. But um, physiatrists are excellent, and, and physiatrists are, are some of the only doctors that are trained in, in injections such as botulinum toxin injections that are used to treat pain. Uh, people probably know about Botox to treat wrinkles, and our uh, plastic surgery colleagues do these. But uh, physiatrists use botulinum toxin to treat pain, and, and it works really well for some uh, localized muscle problems. An example would be after head and neck surgery to increase uh, cervical range of motion. We also uh, work with, again, our colleagues in, uh, who are physical therapists uh, and help with general reconditioning. Uh, they can work on balance and coordination. They can work on specific problems such as increasing shoulder range of motion or head and neck range of motion. Uh, the, our occupational therapists are very similar to physical therapists in, in this field, but they focus more on upper extremities and more on uh, the hands than physical therapists do. Usually, it depends on which part of the country you're in and what your medical system has, but in general, OTs are more upper body focused and, more, and do more with the hands than PTs do, but they do similar kinds of treatments. Um, Dr. Coyle also mentioned uh, a TENS unit, and that's a great way to uh, consider treating more generalized pain. And uh, another thing that, that uh, we do in rehabilitation medicine is something called iontophoresis. And a lot of people have never heard about iontophoresis, but this is another way to, to deliver medication. And it's basically um, the, the kind that we use at the center where I work is, is what I really like to use, which is basically sort of like a big Band-Aid. And you put a little medication on the Band-Aid, and then you wear it for 24 hours, and it delivers corticosteroids uh, to an injured area of the body. So you can use this, for instance, for a tendonitis or um, from, for a rotator cuff uh, impingement or pain problem, for a shoulder problem. Uh, and iontophoresis is really uh, a great way to deliver medication and uh, has very few side effects. Mind-body uh, uh, treatments are great, biofeedback, progressive muscle relaxation, meditation. And then finally, one of the things that I, I, re I ask every single one of my patients is, how are you sleeping at night? Because if you don't sleep well, you're going to have more pain during the day. You need to be able to sleep well. And a lot of my patients will tell me, you know, I could deal with the pain I have during the day if I could just sleep at night. And sleeping at night is something that's really, really important. And, I, and there are certainly medications that can help with sleep. There's a lot of different uh, things that can be done to get someone to, to help someone sleep better, whether it's. Uh, whether you have insomnia because you're worried or because you have hot flashes or because pain is keeping you awake or maybe you don't even know why, why you're um, waking up or, or not able to fall asleep. But that is something you really want to bring up with your doctor. So the, the last thing I want to do is, is give some just practical tips. And my first practical tip is if you're having a problem with pain or you're having a problem with fatigue or sleep, or both, which because they often go hand in hand, make a specific
specific appointment with your doctor to talk about those and tell your doctor during that visit, I'm here because I want to talk about the pain that I'm having wherever. Um, that is really important. Um, doctors, uh, we, we often are told that, that we don't listen well and that we're too busy to, to really pay attention and so on. But I'll tell you what, when people come to me and they say, here's what I want to talk about, then it's much easier for me to really focus on that and listen to that. If, if it, they're sort of vague, it's harder to know where to start and how to help them. So be really specific. My second tip is don't get behind the pain. And by that I mean if you wake up in the morning and you feel really good but your pain gets worse and worse throughout the day and then you decide late in the afternoon when you're really in excruciating pain to take Advil or acetaminophen or whatever you take, um, that's getting behind the pain. Start earlier in the day. You might even want to start before you have any pain at all. Once you get behind the pain, you need more and more medication. So if you're not big on taking medications, then one way to not have to take too many medications is to start earlier and, and do it when either you don't have any pain or the pain is really minimal. Don't get behind the pain. Don't wait too long. Another thing that really helps people, this is my third tip, is to sit to do routine chores. Like if you're uh, doing your, your routine in the morning where you're shaving or you're putting your makeup on or blow drying your hair, sit down. Sit down in the kitchen. Um, this is really helpful for me with uh, neuropathy in my feet, that the more I take time to just uh, get off my feet, the better I feel and the less pain I have. You can sit to garden. You can sit for lots of things, which doesn't mean that you're inactive. I, I'm a very active person. I'm not encouraging inactivity. I'm just encouraging taking a break to sit down. When you're doing something, for instance, if you're putting makeup on in the morning, you're not getting any exercise there. There's no benefit at all from standing. So go ahead and sit during that time. Tip number four, use stress mats. Stress mats, you can buy them at, at um, home goods stores, and they're those spongy mats that you can put in the kitchen or you can put them at work or wherever you are. Um, I recommend this for um, my patients, and I use them all the time at home, and, and you, people don't even notice. But I am always standing on a stress mat, and I hop from mat to mat. And wherever I am in the kitchen, I'm always on a different mat. There's one by my refrigerator. There's one by my stove. There's one by my sink. There's one by where I serve my children on a countertop. So use stress mats. They're really helpful for your feet, especially for neuropathy and um, things like plantar fasciitis. Um, my next tip is to uh, use proper footwear. Um, get new shoes regularly. Splurge on shoes. Shoes are, are great to get new shoes regularly. It's really helpful. Don't, don't use sneakers that you've had for 10 years. Get new sneakers because that cushioning really makes a difference. Even if your shoes don't look like they're worn out, they probably are not giving you as much support if they're more than a year old. Also get shoes with a wide toe box. You want enough room for your toes. Consider getting orthotics. And also, if you really have terrible neuropathy in your feet, consider rocker bottom soles. And that's kind of like a sole that looks a lot like a rocking horse on the bottom that is um, uh, kind of U-shaped and is much easier to walk on and you don't get that, that toe break in the middle of your step where you put a lot of pressure right in the, in the middle of your foot. So rocker bottoms are great if you really have um, uh, severe neuropathy. Finally, Focus 
when you're when you're trying to heal from cancer and its treatment, focus on what's working well and really build that up. And that's sort of a sports medicine tip that we use in rehabilitation medicine, which is if if you have one area of your body that's injured or um, or, or you're having a problem with, then not that you neglect that part of your body. You should definitely get treatment for it, etc. But really work the other parts of your body that are feeling good to get your whole body as strong and healthy as possible. Those are those are my tips. I hope that they're helpful, and, and um, I'm happy to um, move into the, the question and answer period um, at Carolyn's uh, uh, with Carolyn's assistance. Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Sutter, for an excellent, um, really excellent presentation and wonderful practical tips. And uh, um, before we actually take the questions, I just want to introduce Linda Taylor. And Linda Taylor is Education Resource Manager at the Lance Armstrong Foundation, and she would like to say some words of welcome before we take questions. Great. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, and thank you both to the speakers. It was really a wonderful presentation. And the Lance Armstrong Foundation is pleased to partner with all of these organizations to bring you this Cancer Survivorship Series. The education series is a reflection of the LAF's mission to inspire and empower people who are affected by cancer. And I invite you all to visit our website at livestrong.org where you can read information about your cancer concerns, download worksheets to organize and guide your cancer experience, and also to hear stories shared by other cancer survivors. So we, we thank each of you who have joined us today for this topic, and we hope that the information is helpful to you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Linda, and thank you for your support of this this program and uh, the Lance Armstrong Foundation support as well. Thank you very much. I want to thank our speakers for really just really doing outstanding presentations and really handling these questions. I want to thank all of you who have asked such excellent questions. They were many of your questions were actually the questions that we were hoping you would ask. They were the purpose of doing this program. And I recognize that there are many of you who have questions that we have yet to answer. So I do want to acknowledge that this is a one-hour program, and that in planning a program like this, we recognize that there will be many more questions than we can possibly answer in that hour time, and that also that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of a one-hour program. With that being said, um, I want to alert you to the fact that you have all of these resources now to contact, all these different organizations to call um, for um, ongoing support. And I do also want to just alert you to the fact that you certainly can call the staff at Cancer Care. We have a staff of 40 national level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide a host of services and support to you. Um, all of the organizations that have taken part in making today's program possible are also available for you to contact. I do not want anyone to feel that you're alone when this call ends. Now that you've participated in this program, you're part of a community of support which means that when you have a question, and I know many of you do have questions that you've not yet had a chance to ask, so you will please call us afterwards. I mean, we will try very hard to answer and get answers to your questions. Uh, also, we would very much ask each of you to take a moment at the end of today's program and to complete the evaluation form. You know, your comments are so critical to us as we plan programs. Who but each of you know best what we should be offering um, in terms of future programs? So please let us know um, if you'd like us to do this topic again, if you have other topics that you would like us to cover. I want to thank all of you for participating today.